Today on the podcast, we bring you a world-class Anglican theologian, Dr. Sarah Coakley, and a Pulitzer-winning journalist who since 2003 has written for The New Yorker, Eliza Griswold. Sarah is one of those legendary theologians who, when you hear her speak or read any of her literally hundreds of articles, you almost always get something from her, no matter the topic. She speaks of, she almost speaks with, theologians and scholars through the ages, as though they're right there with you in the room. Sarah has now taught theology for 45 years, from Harvard to Oriel College, Oxford, from Princeton to the University of Cambridge, from Lancaster University to St. Andrews. She's published five theological books and edited another 11. Her scholarship looks at the Trinity, the so-called new asceticism, Christology, power, sexuality, the distinction of the self. Today, she's writing a trilogy in systematics, aiming in a forthcoming volume at a more robust theological vision of race. Eliza Griswold, for her part, holds degrees from Princeton and Johns Hopkins. She's written scores of articles through the years, as well as a 2018 Pulitzer-winning book, Amity and Prosperity, The Fracturing of One Family in America, which considers the impact of the energy boom on a small town in Appalachia through a story of personal and familial transformation. Eliza has also published two books of poetry, including the winner of a Lucas Prize, a dispatch, quote, from the 10th parallel, the fault line of Christianity and Islam, unquote. She's been a Guggenheim Fellow, a Neiman Fellow, a Berggruen Fellow at Harvard Divinity School, and a visiting professor at Princeton and NYU, where today she is the distinguished writer-in-residence. In short, these are two brilliantly educated writers engaged in the creative work of theology and poetry amidst the daily beat that journalists cover. And while they'd never met prior to today's conversation, there is a personal connection, which they name at the end. Sarah interacted frequently over the years with Eliza's father, the Right Reverend Frank Griswold, the 25th presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church. Finally, Sarah is both scholarly theologian and Anglican priest, and she draws effortlessly from figures like Dionysius the Oppressor, Maximus the Confessor, St. Augustine, St. John of the Cross, and others, connecting the wisdom of these heavenly-minded thinkers of ages past with a world that is today perhaps more in need of justice than ever. The world Eliza Griswold is reporting on and also seeking. Enjoy the conversation. Let's get right into it. And I will just begin by saying thank you so, so much for taking this time today to bring the quality of your scholarship to bear upon current issues. My job as a journalist is to do that. It's not to be an expert. It is to go out and find people who can actually know the answers and to bring those voices to the page. So, and now to the pod. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for the honor of this conversation, which I've long wanted with you. So Sarah, your approach to complex, contested, and contemporary questions of sexuality, feminism, and gender begins rather surprisingly, from a theological analysis of desire and contemplation. Why is desire the key human category for you as a theologian? 
Well, it's because if you think about it, desire is a feature of human reality that is ineradicable from the moment of birth to the moment of death. The moment we enter this world, we desire warmth, nurture, human interaction. We don't have speech at that point. And I'm talking about desire here, not, of course, fixating solely on sexual desire, which we often assume when we use the language of desire post-Freud. But I'm talking about that whole nexus of longings in us for basic physiological and psychic needs, but also for more rarefied, complex, cultural longings, which are instilled in us often by media interventions and so on and so forth. So I'm very interested in thinking about desire as the fundamental anthropological category before God, to put it in a rather complex theological way. Selfhood, for me, resides fundamentally in the realm of desire. And I don't think you would necessarily have that as a unanimous answer when you ask theologians, what is the fundamental category of selfhood? Most would probably jump immediately to the issue of being made in the image of God. But I think what that means in the history of Christian thought has never been uh, unanimously agreed, which is very interesting. But I go on in my theology to follow a rather obscure theologian of the late 5th century, your friend and mine, Pseudo-Dionysius the Areopagite, who was one of the first as a Christian Platonist to see desire as that which is implanted in us by God. So it is actually the locus of our relationship to God. For him, and in my theology too, desire is actually God's family. And desire is implanted in us as the means of our return to our fundamental union with God, which we spend our lives in quest of. So desire isn't just the fundamental anthropological category for me, but it's actually also more a prior metaphysical theological category. In God, of course, desire does not connote lack Whereas in humanity, it always connotes some sort of longing for what we do not have, as well as enjoyment of what we do have. I'm really interested to see you looking quite puzzled by this because- No, I'm not. I'm not looking puzzled. I'm, I'm so, I think it's so apt. And the reason it seems to me so apt is a theological argument that makes practical sense to me is very much the idea of wave theory or the universal field. And that, what is the stirring to call into being, to call matter into being? It's desire, right? It is the desire of the universal to arise into a play of consciousness as the particular, right? Forgetting one is being made of this greater stuff, and that greater stuff is God. So one could see the God consciousness in all levels of that, but I absolutely love that because it's just about being where we are not, being called into being, into a state of action. And I think it's beautiful and I think it makes absolute sense. And it gets beyond the sort of boundaries of selfhood that I think we've moved beyond. We have to move beyond if we're going to help save the planet. By the way, just what you said just now, you sounded exactly like Maximus the Confessor, <laughs> who probably also isn't one of your favorite bedtime readings, because he as it were, opens up out of this Dionysian heritage in, in the East, a strongly cosmic rendition of how desire is that which 
moves and transforms and uh, permeates the universe and has its unity, of course, in Christ, the Logos, because that it is that reconnects us to the transcendent ultimate source in God. So beautiful. And and it, I doubt you deal in these very quotidian expressions of God and spirituality, but one of the things that in our, my lay plane we often talk about is that obviously the desire, and that is the word, the desire to seek God is God, Right. God is seeking God's self, right? In what's classically called exodus and reditus, going out and returning, as it were, scooping us up into this participatory interaction with himself and with each other in the body of Christ. So I start with all that bag and baggage because I want to try and place all these agonizing social and political problems that we confront in the realm of sexuality and gender, at least in, in my first volume of systematics, in that, as it were, metaphysical context. And the reason I connect this so closely with the activity of contemplation, by which I don't mean some very arcane form of mysticism only enjoyed by a small handful of enclosed nuns. What I mean is any form of attention to reality and God in reality that is, as it were, relatively naked before God, that renders ourselves vulnerable to the divine revelation. And the reason I make that so central is, which I think everybody has access to, and the great thing is you have access to that again, even if you are in some way strongly handicapped or dying or unable to speak. I make this call because I think this is the crucible in which most intensively our desires are tested and sorted. So if you stop thinking of desire simply as sexual desire and start thinking of it much more generically, as incidentally Freud himself did, as you know, he had a very interesting cultural theory about desire. He wasn't only fixated on, on sex. But if you start thinking about desire as that whole nexus of longings, some of them very immediate and physiological, some of them highly rarefied and psychic and cultural. And then prayer as the place where these are sorted in relationship to our very deepest and most fundamental desire, which I take to be our desire for God, that which is implanted in us. Then you see the whole life's journey, in a way, as an attempt to, support, to sort to sort those desires, not note to make them straight, as if this was some kind of code for normative heterosexuality, as some people hear me saying. The issue is our identity before God and how that identity is given to us and re-given to us in the activity of attention, deep attention to God. That gives us a life's journey. And there are some theologians in tradition who have spelled that out with particular acuity. In this first volume of systematics we're discussing up to now, it's Gregory of Nyssa in the East and Augustine I particularly look at. But in the second volume of systematics I'm writing, at the moment, I turn to the great Carmelite authors of the 16th century, Teresa of Abia and John of the Cross, because they are the greatest cartographers of desire. They actually, you know, drew diagrams to show how we have to negotiate the relationship between longings that are 
sinful and need to be laid aside or purified and those that direct us back to deepest union with God in Christ. I think, Sarah, one of the reasons this is so incredibly powerful and life-giving to hear is that suddenly beinghood, personhood, we'll say, because we're people, is once again an inward journey and experiential rather than focused solely on what container we are in what container we are in, our, our given identity or the perception of that. And as we've talked about just briefly, you know, I have been spending more than a year now inside a fairly radical, radically progressive Anabaptist church, which has in fact had a, a reckoning over racial reconciliation with the older group of Anabaptists being very much rooted in Teresa, Richard Rohr, saying our shared identity is our identity in Christ. And a younger generation saying, saying that is you are missing the interrogation of our systemic problems. Sure, our identity may be in Christ, but when you say that as a white male pastor in your 60s, you are erasing me because you are saying we are the same and we are not the same by virtue of our bodies. So how does this, when you come to this, which strikes me as incredibly practical wisdom that you're sharing in the highest intellectual terms, what does that have to say to someone who says, no, don't erase my identity. My identity is what Jesus is giving me to work with. Well, in the story you just told of the two types of people in that church, it would be very easy to allocate me quite simply to the first, but that would be to mishear me. In other words, and this is one of the problems, by the way, with reclaiming mystical theologians like the Carmelites, because they have been misread for so many centuries. They've been interiorized. They've been depoliticized. They've been, as it were, especially in the case of John, you can't really do that with Teresa, but, but in the case of John of the Cross, they have been read in ways that erase their significance for bodily life and for social and political life. And so I have to do a great deal of work in the second volume, showing how it only took a few years after the death of these two for them to be misread in extraordinary ways that we're still dealing with. And we have to rescue them in their reforming original and politically absolutely hot significance at the time of their own lives. It was not for nothing that they were brought up before the Inquisition, that they were persecuted by their bishops and confreres and and so on. So there's a huge uphill struggle here that you've immediately put your finger on, that any appeal to contemplation sounds as though it's on that inward journey that erases difference. And all our worries at the moment in political terms and public terms about identity, whether it be racial identity or gender identity, is struggling to be heard about such intersectional differences, as we now call them. But my view is this, not that there's an erasure of difference, but a, uh, an extraordinary celebration of difference <laughs> through this approach, without in any way suggesting that identity can be constructed in contradistinction from the transcendent divine. I think a lot of our troubles in, in, the se- in secular society, a lot of our anxieties about identity are because such discourses 
do not have access often to the notion of the divine. I don't know if you remember that wonderful poem that Bonhoeffer wrote not long before he, which are in letters and papers from prison, and, and he's agonizing about his own state, his political state, his internal state. And the poem is called Who Am I? And at the end of the poem, he says, whatever I am, Lord, you know that I am yours. You can't say of Bonhoeffer that he was erasing his distinctiveness as a political prisoner, as a bodily man, or whatever, in the conditions in which he found himself. But the greatest comfort he found, because he didn't know who he was at this point, was in reminding himself that he was God's. <laughs> but to remind yourself that you're God's doesn't mean that you erase difference. <laughs> I mean, only think of the wonderful Pauline vision of the complexity of the body of Christ, um, how every single one is needed, and that they're not to be ordered in the way that we expect, and that the world orders those bits. So I hope that's a partial answer. It's a very hard one to ride, because as you've immediately picked up, the expectations of our culture tend to immediately suggest one set of interpretations of what I'm saying. When I say in volume one of my systematics that gender rarely matters, <laughs> but ultimately is less fundamental than desire. <laughs> That's what I mean, that our desire for God and God's desire for us is the fundamental stratum. But because gender, for me, can be defined as embodied, differentiated, relational being, whatever that is, that means it's always going to be important. It's irreducibly important. It's going to continue to be important after our death, in my view. There's a difference of opinion on that one within the Christian tradition itself. But we're never going to be, as it were, non-relational, <laughs> differentiated entities, even after death. Right? And depending on your view of the immortality state, my view is of the more Aristotelian rendition of this, in which our souls are always connected to our bodies, intrinsically connected, so we don't float off into a totally disembodied condition, or at least when we return at the end times, if we believe in that. We will have differentiated bodies, in my view. So it's not to undermine differentiation that my theology operates, but rather to place that immeasurably complex set of possible differentiated beings into a vision of divine transformation. I mean, there's something, again, in the practical application of what you're arguing that just is so sound. I mean, I grew up peering through the grate on a regular basis at Sister Pia living as a Carmelite. And my question then about, about holy orders in a certain capacity and that retreat from the world is... How can you say, how can you say you're doing the greatest good for the world if you're pulling out? How, what are you doing, really? Right? And in a way, it's exactly, it is the argument to reduce one's quote unquote goodness, right? Or the teleological drive of one's life toward God, right? To reduce that to what we understand is to lose the greater part of it. Like is to like cut the mysticism off at its knees. So it seems to me a lot of what is so beautiful about what you're saying is how do we restore embodiment and mysticism to these traditions without thinking they're dusty books that are somehow outdated because they don't have me too in them? 
or that mysticism, by the way, it's a, that's a word I have some misgivings about, but, but to presume that mysticism and embodiedness are, as it were, mutually incompatible. That's where we started off on this track of thinking, isn't it? But my point really has been that in the terrible agonies that we're confronting at the moment in our society about personal identity, and in particular, the tremendous debates about whether identity is something that you can just choose for yourself, whatever it is. I do think that those those questions are thrown into a different light and made, at least to my mind, less anxiety-making if I am aware, first, of the utter mysteriousness of all human identities, and secondly, that the meaning given to that mysteriousness is ultimately hidden in God. And that, in my view, should make us less anxious about people who choose to call themselves whatever they want to call themselves in that long list of um, LGBTQIA, etc. Even those acronyms actually are not not a gal, as it were. They're not like tokens of a type, because each of them, I think, summons a different set of really fascinating issues. But the agony that we spend on this in our culture at the moment is really fascinating because it shows that we finally ripped open this this deeply theological question. But of course, if you're absolutely opposed to thinking theologically, then that's not going to be any, any comfort to you. Yeah. Another deep theological question that you approach with such careful thought at the same time meaning as a theologian is this idea of the Trinity. And I wonder if you might spend a couple of minutes articulating to us this view and, and how you find it helpful or, or what, what capacity it has for application in our world today. Certainly, yes, I'll try to be succinct. There's a, I have a very complicated argument in, in the book I've mentioned, God, Sexuality and the Self, about how the doctrine of the Trinity came into being in the first place. And the story I tell is not the story that's usually told in the history of doctrine textbooks. (laughs) And the reason is I start from the phenomenon of prayer rather than starting from the phenomenon of how an argument broke out in the third to fourth centuries about whether Christ, the son of God, had to be thought of as divine in the same sense as the father, followed by a later argument about whether the Holy Spirit should also be regarded as divine in the same sense as the Father and Son, and also as having some kind of distinct personal existence. That's the story you'll get in your textbook formation at seminary. It's very bemusing to people because they quite rightly ask two very intelligent questions. One is, but wait a minute, this is the Arian question, so-called, after Arius, the great heretic of the early 4th century, is, well, do we really have to think of Christ as divine in the same, precisely the same sense as the Father? And surely the New Testament doesn't necessarily presume that or doesn't absolutely consistently presume it. That's one question. And the second question, which is even more bemusing in a way, is, but wait a minute, If you're Jewish, you can talk about the Holy Spirit without insisting that this Holy Spirit is some kind of distinct, personal, in technical terms, hypostatic entity. It's just a metaphorical way of talking about God's outreach or inspiration, whatever. Those are really good questions. 
And so I go back to the very beginning and start from a different angle. And I go back to Paul's Epistle to the Romans, chapter 8, which is kind of the summation of the whole argument of Romans. And there, if you remember, Paul says that we don't know how to pray. We can't do it. (laughs) And prayer, therefore, is not technically done by us (laughs) any more than desiring is done by us. It's done technically by the interruption of the Holy Spirit, who prays in us in, unsurprisingly, size too deep for words, because this is transcendent language. It's God answering to God. Now, if you start there in that phenomenon, which I think is particularly focusedly felt in attentive, contemplative prayer, then you see immediately the answer to the second question that no one answers very well in the old story about the development of the doctrine. That is, there is something in God's answering to God in prayer, which is already distinguishing something in God, (laughs) the one who calls and the one who answers in us. And that's true of Judaism as well. Why does the psalmist say, O Lord, open thou my lips? It's already suggesting that prayer is brought about in us by God in God's self. Although, of course, usually Judaism there are moments of exception, doesn't go on to conclude from that, that that what is happening in prayer is some kind of hypostatically distinct entity answering to God. But if you start there, it's really fascinating how it changes the order of thinking about the Trinity, because then you have to ask yourself, well, wait a minute, where is Christ in this picture, if we're starting from prayer? And the answer is, of course, that According to the vision in Romans 8, what we're doing in prayer is standing alongside and in the space of the sun, (laughs) in having this conversation going on within us. All right. So our sighs too deep for words are the Holy Spirit's answering to the Father in and through the life and witness and resurrected manifestation of Christ himself. And we're being made adopted children. Mm. So then is it our job to present ourselves to God, to surrender to God and make ourselves vulnerable to God's will, right? Your will be done and offer ourselves as instrument. Exactly. And people often wonder whether the discussion of prayer in Romans 8 by Paul is compatible with Jesus' teaching on the Lord's Prayer. It seems, you know, chalk and cheese. But actually, the more you look at it, as you've immediately grasped, the Lord's Prayer opens with the request to the divine to be brought into the realm of the divine. All right. Why do feminists have trouble with some of this Trinitarian thinking? Well, I think there are two main reasons. One is linguistic. So the battle rumbles on, continues to rumble on about whether it's possible as a feminist, to call God Father. And in particular, though this is actually a slightly different question, whether one should call God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It makes a difference whether you're choosing one or the other. Jesus called God Father. He didn't call, he didn't use Trinitarian naming, obviously. So there's the linguistic problem, whether that is so inherently patriarchal and can only summon up worldly patriarchal naming and therefore subsume ourselves back into the realm of the Father. There's that problem. The other problem is this whole question of vulnerability. 
which you've just named as well. And I am subject to a lot of critique from feminists who think that the very posture of contemplation, for instance, summons up an invitation to abuse because of its intentional vulnerability before God, or is in some sense normatively heterosexual because so much language in the biblical tradition and in the mystical tradition draws on the erotic, as for instance in the Song of Songs, to, um, according to this critique, re-establish patriarchal heteronormativity, to use the current jargon. So those are the two major problems. I have an answer to both. I don't know whether you want to hear them. <laughs> I would, because I mean, I just the idea of confronting prayer with my overly active ego already without some posture of surrender would be a disaster. I'd be like out there buying white Cadillacs in the name of prayer. Like it would feed the wrong aspect of desire. But I wonder what what is your response to these critiques? How might we move beyond them? Yes, well, I think the first thing it has to be just to, to take the second problem first. Of course, I'm not, den- I'm not in denial about the fact that the history of Christian tradition has read heteronormative <laughs> stories out of, you know, teachings about prayer. Of course it has. The question is whether contemplation in its essence actually destabilizes those actually, which is my view. In other words, rather than, I would argue, it would take a much longer time than we have for me to fill out this argument, but I would argue that contemplation is the place where we not only test our desires and become most truly ourselves, whatever that is, before God, but also the place where we are, through a silent waiting on God, given the courage to speak prophetically and act politically. This is not, it's, this is the opposite of a quietistic act. <laughs> it is actually the most politically resistant act you can be engaged in, in my view. I've taught silent meditation to prisoners in jail. <laughs> and Nothing frightens the guards more than to look through the picture window and see 20 men whom they know as reputationally violent sitting in complete peace and solidarity and silence. It is an act of resistance, as Gandhi and Bonhoeffer and Martin Luther King knew full well. So that's the first answer. That's that's the whole category of whether vulnerability and prayer simply summons abuse or reestablishes some worldly norm of oppression. The other story about how to name God is rather different. Of course, they're connected, because if you believe that simply calling God Father under any conditions re-summons that entire patriarchal abuse medium as the message, they are obviously connected. But my strategies for dealing with the language question are a little bit different. I do think that prayer is the place where we, as it were, summon and face out our own demons, which is very painful and takes our lifetime. And therefore, for those people who have suffered appalling abuse, and I know that you are at the, the very, this very moment in action to try and rescue women from Afghanistan who have been tortured and abused, for those who have suffered such abuse, an invitation to silent prayer may initially be extremely terrifying because it can easily take you to a psychotic place of revisiting such abuse. But at the same time, 
it's not something that can be avoided in one's own memory, as it were, however much help um, and assistance and support you need. And so I do fundamentally believe that what I call the the tipex approach to the problem of theological language, which is, you know, get out your whitener and just dispose of every time you see the word father. I think that represses stuff rather than actually disposing of it. And therefore, one needs a combination of prayer practice, highly critical thinking about the tradition, and then a set of strategies to constantly remind yourself that when you're talking about God as father, you're not talking about human fathers or abusive patriarchies. This is about the transcendence of the divine. And as Calvin, of all people, said with particular insight, it's through the interruption of the spirit in prayer that we come to believe, finally, that the divine father in the Trinity is not an abusive or punitive human father, but exactly the opposite. <laughs> so this is this is a process that has to be gone through. It's not something that can be magicked away by mere erasure. Right, or the or the word they would use possibly of spiritual bypass in 90s, right? I've seen a wonderful HDS graduate, Megan Watterson, leading women at a meditation gym in New York City called Mindful, where a mala is $180, right? Leading in a tradition that she estimates was what the Hezekiahs were doing. And so probably Mary Magdalene was doing something like that. And I say that because for anyone to be insistent about fixing language, as if there is one reading, is to miss the entire reality like I had a friend the other day saying, well, did you know that Mary Magdalene was actually, you know, the disciple of the disciples? And I said, what have you been reading that has this certitude to it? Because there are wonderful strains of theology and story that allow us this complex reality. But I don't, the move inherent in fixing the narrative in one way, that's the problem, right? And I see that happening around us in problematic ways where you want to reduce theologians to something in contemporary terms or one story or reduce scripture to one story that suits your ends because you love it or you hate it is in itself not the right move, no matter what the reading. That doesn't mean you haven't got marvelous resources already given to us within the tradition for the constant and necessary correction of the collapse of the notion of the transcendent into human patriarchy. I mean, this is an absolutely daily ongoing undertaking. And there are lots of strategies you can use which are really creative, like using oxymoronic, poetic language for God that precisely destabilizes patriarchal solidification. There's one example of that which has some ambiguity for obvious reasons, where at the Council of Toledo, the, uh, there was talk of Christ coming forth from the womb of the Father. That's obviously illogical. <laughs> but I think it was designed to destabilize the idea that we have you know, static essentialist notions of gender that we simply read back into the divine. The reason it's ambiguous, of course, is it can also be read more cynically as saying, well, fatherhood even controls wombs. All right? So these things can work both ways. But 
you know from Julian of Norwich and from many other. And I'm sure that's exactly who our listeners were thinking of. Yes, you know, spontaneously, out, especially out of the mystical traditions, you get these completely unexpected gender bendings um, uh, attendant on thinking about Christ or, or thinking about the Trinity. And I think the more we revive some of those, the more we sort of tie a knot in our handkerchief about how not to collapse Trinitarian language simply into patriarchal thinking of a worldly sort. But we also have to do really good teaching about this in the church. And I'm not sure that the church is stepping up to that even now. No, I think that's exactly right. And what I think also you're speaking to, which I wish there were a way to address more systematically, would be a returning to some of the Eastern principles that have gotten lost, certainly about the Trinity, right? We see in Eastern Orthodoxy, and this is inbuilt prejudice, right? Stinky old monks and priests with funny hats who are misogynists. Not inaccurate, not complete, right? To not understand that the theology of the East allows a more complex language and interpretation of so much. So I would love to see the church do a better job of reclaiming some of those complexities, but I would have no idea how to begin to do that. I would be quite nervous about leaving our listeners with a kind of disjunctive view of the East and the West on this issue, because I think both East and West have their fair share of misogynisms and patriarchal modes of authorship, but also both for different historic reasons of ways of thinking about creation, human nature, and and the nature of gender, and so on. East and West have multiple varieties within them. In this first volume of systematics I've been talking about, I have particularly drawn on Gregory of Nyssa, because I think his, in the late 4th century, because I think his thinking on, on gender, on asceticism, and on desire are uniquely interesting in our contemporary context. But frankly, they, they didn't really dominate in the Eastern tradition that came after. He certainly influenced some other people, including Maximus Confessor, very strongly, but, but he was a relatively overlooked figure. And Augustine, for all his dominance in the West, also has many more strands to him on sexuality and gender than we normally assume. He's richer. So I'm not, a, I'm not an Augustine hater, as many feminists have been over the, the last decades. You know, I would, I would imagine for our, our listeners that the fluency here, Sarah, through Dionysius and Augustine and then the Carmelite authors, John of the Cross and Gregory of Nyssa, all the voices that you've named are largely unfamiliar, not familiar, and that the ability that we have to draw on resources and theologians and great thinkers and philosophers of ages past is easily overlooked in our craft and our profession. And I have a question for both of you, really, about the vocation of a priest, thinking in, in part of the task you've taken up, uh, Professor Coakley, for all these years, as you've also been a scholar. And Eliza, thinking of your, of your father and your own justice work. Don't see me through the lens of my father. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the question. It's commonly thought, right, and I'll do it this way. There, there's a story told of a Carmelite nuns that were written up the death of John Paul II in the New York Times. And of course, the spelling was K-A-R-M-A space L-I-T-E. 
And it wasn't caught. It got through, you know, because we miss these things. And my own predecessor here took a call from a journalist years ago, said something like, I understand gender is being rethought by some of the Southern Baptists. And there's a book you're talking about, Ephesians. Who's the publisher? Where can I get a copy? And of course, there is a gap, right, between theology and journalism, between religion and mainstream reporters. And so I'm curious, I guess, to ask, why is it that the vocational work of a priest should be affective, like you describe in your, in your newest book, uh, Sarah, should be mindful of emotion and not merely analytic or didactic or cognitive? Why is it that the justice work of a journalist should be very gritty and tied to what is on the ground differently than ascetic? The job of a journalist in writing about religion is to be a translator. Um, my job is to find Sarah and talk to her about Maximus the Confessor, who is not known to me either, and to write on my son's spelling word throne, Maximus the Confessor, so I don't forget, and to write down the Bonhoeffer title, and then to go do my homework so that I can explain without shaming an audience who such information will not be familiar as if I were writing about neuroscience, right? It is helpful as a journalist that I can speak to Sarah about that I know what a Carmelite is, right? It saves her having to do a lot of work that she shouldn't have to do, right? But to see myself as any kind of gatekeeper, as anyone who's coming down to decide who is in or who is out, is in itself a brand of the fundamentalism that has gotten us into so much trouble already. People often will say, there's a lot. I get a lot of feedback on who I choose to write about and who I don't. And I really watch making sure that I'm not just trying to respond to the flavor of the month. That is not my job. My job is to make sure that The New Yorker is doing a responsible job covering the issues of our time and the thinkers of our time. So that's how I see my role. And to be really honest, I often use the St. Francis prayer as a make me a channel, you know, make me a channel of this idea. How will people understand it in an embodied reality? What do I need a scene? What do I have to push some theologian to go do in terms of, you know, going to Dairy Queen or something they don't really want to do, but I have to have it, right? So it's not pure in any way, but it better not have some ideological bent to it, or it is exactly what I am trying not to do. Wonderful. I think in a curiously parallel way, but obviously not the same way, the priest is the one who stands before God, <laughs> as Archbishop Ramsey once put it, with the people on her heart. That's what we're doing at the altar. We are standing in persona Christi, in the person of Christ, on behalf, on behalf of the people whose care has been given to us. And how can that not be affective? Because, you know, it's on our heart. The people come to us in various forms of neediness and various forms of vulnerability, various forms of grief, abuse, anxiety, loneliness. And that's where we meet them. But unfortunately, there has grown up in the churches of late, I think, it's an ancient disjunction, but it got much worse at the Enlightenment, a kind of disjunction between academic theology on the one hand and 
something often called practical theology or pastoral theology that's meant to be sort of less intellectual and, and more, um, more immediately focused on, on the person. And I think that is a hugely false disjunction. I'm made very unpopular by my views here, but I, I've often argued that any theology that's good theology and done in the university has got to have absolutely practical implications. Otherwise, it becomes a form of sort of narcissistic um, enunciation of my own self-importance. Theology is only worth anything if it's talk about God and authentically talk about God. And so I've seen it as my life's vocation since I was ordained 21 years ago to to pull together that which I write in the academy and that which I embody in my attempts at supporting people spiritually in the parish. And I think that that is something that is there's a lot of skepticism about, even in the church. And that's why there's a lot of anti-intellectualism theologically in the church, which I think is not doing us any favors at the moment. It's our biggest questions. <laughs> but at the same time, let me say a mea culpa here. I think in the last few generations of theological work, there's been so much obfuscating language written by professional theologians that they are themselves to blame for making themselves incomprehensible. Before I go, I just want to—I just want to say a, a special thank you to Sarah in this realm because to move between registers of thought and speech is to speak of God. There is no siloed understanding of theology or practical applications. I just wanted to respond to that with my dad for a moment because he's eighty-three. And I see him almost every day. And we have an ongoing conversation now about the divine feminine. And if the practical world, if the everyday world saw my dad, you know, carrying a crozier, the shepherd's crook, wearing rings and beanies and miters, you might think he's a certain kind of person. But to grow up with him doing yoga naked, quite frankly, but on a sheepskin at 5.30 every morning, he is probably to many people the worst example of the patriarchy. Maybe the last white male head of the Episcopal Church. Last, fine, great. Harvard, Oxford, all that stuff. And to know that the role that he has quietly played in terms of sexuality and women in the priesthood is to know a different reality. And I think the gift of that for me is not just following his theology, which I don't and wouldn't even know how to begin, but is knowing that religious figures live complex identities as everybody else does. And that must be honored because that is the reality of God. Absolutely. I've long been a friend and admirer of his as well. And We've always had deep conversations. It's sort of impossible to have a conversation with your father that isn't both extremely funny and very deep. And the last time I had a long conversation with him, we were tramping across an enormous ploughed field en route to Little Gidding, the pilgrimage site <laughs> memorialized by T.S. Eliot. There aren't many people like him in the Episcopal Church left, actually, if I may say so. And this need to integrate deep prayer very probing, critical, prophetic thinking <laughs> and affective response to the individual and devastating needs of others. That's what it's about. And I'm afraid I'm not very confident at the moment that, that the way we're training people for the ministry is really even aiming for that anymore because it's become so frightened 
A, about falling into terrible mistakes relating to abuse, which it jolly well ought to be frightened about. But also it's become much more frightened about money and, you know, loss of status and loss of numbers and the need to strategize forms of mission that can be instrumentalized to success. And I think it must be a sign I'm getting old, but I do find those kinds of strategies, especially when aligned with a rather deep re-emergent anti-intellectualism, quite disturbing. Well, I couldn't agree more. Thank you both so very much for the time and for investing seriously in this work. Thank you so much, Eliza. Glad we met at last. Oh, <laughs> I'm just going to call my dad right now and, and send it to him. I know he'd love that. So thank you so much. Thank you. Faith Angle exists to connect leading journalists with leading theologians and scholars who see a wider horizon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>